listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The sermon scripture for this week is Song of Songs, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, 15. How beautiful you are, my love. How very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them is bereaved. Your lips are like a crimson thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in courses. On it hang a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that feed among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will hasten to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You have ravished my heart with the glance of your eyes. With one jewel of your necklace, how sweet is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips distill nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The scent of your garments is like the scent of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A garden locked, a fountain sealed. Your channel is an orchard of pomegranates, with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard with saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all chief spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. The word of God for the people of God. And thank you, James, for that reading. So I feel like I should give a little trigger warning uh, before we get started. <clears throat> um, <laughs> we're in Song of Songs, uh, which is a collection of erotic love poetry from ancient Israel. All right? And um, I've warned about this for a couple weeks now, but we are going to be getting into some stuff over the next two Sundays, today and next week. We're going to be talking about issues related to sex and sexuality. Uh, if you're listening to this or watching online from home, it's a good idea to get the kids out of the room for this one. Um, this is an adult sermon. Um, and if anything I talk about today is triggering for, for you here in person at all, uh, feel free to quietly exit the sanctuary. That is completely okay. Are we on board with that? Yes, I'm getting nods. That's good. Uh, before we get into the heavy stuff, though, I want to begin with a little levity. Um, we have already talked about our cultural distance from this book a fair bit how we are separated from Song of Songs by centuries of culture and language and social norms. And that is probably nowhere more apparent than in the passage James just read for us, uh, where the male lover describes his sweetheart. I'm just going to reread some of this. How beautiful you are, my love. How very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Swoon, <laughs> right? Uh, 
Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them is bereaved, because nothing is worse than a bereaved ewe. Am I right? (laughs) Your lips are a crimson thread. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, on and on. Almost all these images are lost on us, right? Like it just goes right over our head. Um, They don't translate well. And just to, just to demonstrate this, to highlight um, our distance from this book, some brilliant artist took the liberty of illustrating this passage. Let's put this picture up. This, <laughs> I know it's hard to see uh, if you're far away, but this is a literal depiction of what the woman described in this passage uh, would look like. It's nightmare-inducing. Um, you can see, though, um, her, her neck is a tower, and you can see it's adorned with, with the soldiers of many warriors. Um, she's got goats for hair, two fawns for breasts. Her tongue is dripping, I assume, honey. Uh, you've got Winnie the Pooh kind of scaling the side of the tower to collect it, which is just adorable. Um, <laughs> all that to say, a good reminder of our cultural distance from this book Uh, And a good reminder that not every part of the Bible is written to be taken literally. Can I get an amen to that? Excellent. With that out of the way, uh, let's get into it. Let's talk about sex and the self. Uh, As a reminder, we've got a little roadmap uh, for this series, uh, and it comes right out of Genesis. This relational understanding, we go to the next slide, perfect. This relational understanding of humanity a.k.a. Adam, that's laid out right in the opening pages of Scripture. Human beings are relational creatures. We're relational beings. We were created for a relationship with God, creation, other people, uh, and the self. And since all four of these relational wings are connected, we can read Song of Songs, and with its celebration and depiction of romantic love, we can draw wisdom applicable to all four of these branches. Um, last week, we uh, got into it, and we focused on the upper part of the vertical branch, us and God. And for this week and next, we're going to be talking about the self for this week and moving into our relationships with spouse, partners, romantic realm next week. What I'm really hoping to get at, though, over these next two weeks is this question. What sexual ethics can we draw from Song of Songs? How can this book, in its depiction of sexuality and romantic love, how can it guide and shape our experience of sexuality today here in the 21st century? How can it shape it into in a more loving, relationally healthy, and God-honoring way? This is a really important question. Uh, Because our culture is kind of a mess on the sex ethics front. Um, The the sex ethics of 21st century Western civilization is basically anything goes. As long as there's consent, as long as everyone is on board, um, you can basically do whatever you want. Hook up, fool around, experiment, have sex with total strangers you meet on dating apps, right? This is becoming normal. Engage in any sort of sexual activity no, wonder, or no, no matter if there's love involved or not, or if it's degrading or not, as long as everyone is consenting and using protection, we're told that it's all fair game. And while society has made some really important advancements in tackling patriarchy, creating space for uh, historically marginalized sexual identities, all good things, by the way, there's a lot we're still getting wrong. 
our sexual revolution has not led to better sex across the board. Uh, Every other week, it seems like there's another sex scandal in the news uh, involving some sort of a politician who cheats on their spouse, or some actor, or corporate executive, or a pastor who's committed some sort of sexually abusive act. And even in consenting relationships, things aren't going great right now. Um, I read an article last week about how millennials are having less sex than their boomers and Gen X parents. In fact, according to this recent study, the rates of millennials and sexless marriages is actually higher than for any other previous generation. Young adults are finding it a lot more difficult to find committed partners, and we're also reporting higher levels of sexual dissatisfaction and sexual dysfunction than ever before. We've divorced sex from love and commitment, basically turning sex into really just another exchange of services in our capitalist society. And the results have not been good. Unfortunately, uh, the church is not doing much to help. A lot of churches don't talk about sex at all. It's just taboo. You know, we don't go there. And the churches that do talk about sex often handle the topic with so much shame and repression that we end up doing more harm than good. But this is where Song of Songs can help. This book does not lay out a step-by-step guide for sex ethics. That is definitely not what it was written for. This is a collection of love poetry. But it does depict a couple in love who look nothing like the repressed, shame-based sex ethic of many churches. And they're also a far cry from the often abusive, exploitative, anything-goes of our culture. I believe in citing my sources, too, so I want to point out that I'm following the work of Dr. Sarah Barton on this front. I think we got her picture up here. Yep. Dr. Barton is university chaplain at Pepperdine University out in California. She wrote a really good article on Song of Songs that we're actually going to be including as a discipleship resource this week on the first forward. So if you're not already subscribed to the church email newsletter, you want to get on that before Wednesday because this is a really good article. And Dr. Barton teases out three attributes of the lovers in Song of Songs that she argues points us toward a better sex ethic. The lovers in Song of Songs exhibit sexual knowledge, sexual embodiment, and sexual agency. Knowledge, embodiment, and agency. We're going to get into all three of these today, and I want to start with knowledge. The lovers described in this book are sexually knowledgeable. I think that's one thing we can all agree on. It's very obvious when you read Song of Songs. Um, They are well-informed about love and sexuality. They're comfortable in their own bodies. Um, They know what they want out of sex, what they like, what they don't like. They're attentive to the needs of their partner. Very sexually knowledgeable. This is especially notable for the female lover in Song of Songs because the bulk of this book is presented from the woman's perspective, which is really notable if you know anything at all about ancient literature. Typically, when sex is talked about or depicted in ancient writings, and this is definitely true in the Bible, it's almost always from the man's perspective. If we think through the stories of Scripture, there's a lot of sex throughout the Bible, And the main character is almost always someone like King David, or Abraham, or Samson, all men. 
Not so in this book. In Song of Songs, the female lover is the main voice. Her verses take up almost twice as much space as the male lover. This has led some scholars to conclude that Song of Songs was likely written at least in part by a woman, which is huge. The most likely reason we'd be getting a female perspective on sex from this ancient book is that a woman probably had a hand in creating this text. And she's a woman who knows a lot about sex. If you think about the traditional ideal of um, for female sexuality from like the Puritans through the 1950s and still in a lot of churches today, the ideal that's held up often of like female sexuality is an innocent virgin, right? The stereotype of the young virgin woman dressed in white who is saving herself for her spouse, her husband. That is not the picture we get in Song of Songs at all. Song of Songs depicts two lovers who are sexually knowledgeable. They're not innocent tulips dressed in white. Um, They are comfortable with sex. They are experienced at sex. And they seem to have accumulated much of this experience before marriage. The two lovers in this book are not married. The husband, uh, or the, sorry, the man refers to his lover as his bride. He also calls her my sister. Um, Again, what do we take literally? Um, But traditionally, the two lovers in this book are portrayed as a betrothed couple, two um, partners on the cusp of marriage who aren't quite there yet. And so they're longing for each other. They're searching for each other. They're fantasizing about each other and quite possibly consummating their love before their wedding night. Now, in a perfect world, um, I believe marriage is the ideal context uh, in which to gain sexual knowledge. Ideally, marriage should be a fun, safe, and enjoyable context where a new couple can come together to grow and discover together what they do and do not enjoy in the bedroom. That's one of the perks of marriage. But it doesn't always work out that way. Many of us come into marriage with prior sexual experiences. And usually that experience is a mixed bag where you've got enjoyable moments, awkward moments, uh, pleasurable moments, heartbreak, maybe even trauma. And this can generate a lot of guilt and insecurity over those premarital sexual encounters, especially in the church. We don't talk about the fact that many of us had sex before we were married, even though statistically speaking, many of us had sex before we were married, right? And with all the baggage that this tends to bring, all the guilt and shame, I believe there's a grace here. Even in the darkest part of our lives, there's often a grace, something we learn, something we take with us, some wisdom that we benefit from. If you had sex before you were married, you've been imparted with sexual knowledge that can hopefully inform your marriage in a positive way. You are not damaged goods. You come into marriage already knowing some of what you like and what you don't, what you're into. You know your boundaries, what feels safe and what is off limits. Use that knowledge to inform and hopefully enhance sex with your spouse. That's grace. And of course, it's not just the virgin couple 
that gets to discover their sexuality together in marriage, any married couple can do this. No matter if you've been married for five years or 50 years, my prayer for every married couple in this room is that marriage would be a safe, loving, and supporting space in which to explore your own sexuality together. Don't be afraid to try new stuff with your partner. Discover what you like. Speak up if things veer into territory that you're not comfortable with. Communicate about sex with your spouse, especially as you enter new stages of life. I'm aware that sex changes over time as our bodies change. Speaking of someone who threw out my back this past week by coughing, which like it's already starting. Um, <laughs> but sexual experiences and expression evolves over a lifetime together. You talk to any couple that has been married for years, they will tell you that sexuality and intimacy is about way more than what happens in the bedroom. And as our needs change, as our physical abilities change, make that an opportunity to discover new ways to serve and delight your, your partner, both in the bedroom and out. Grow in knowledge of them. Discover new ways to delight them, to serve their needs, whatever stage of life you're in. One more thing I wanna say about sexual knowledge, because I wanna cover everything. Um, and this is true for anyone, but I'm thinking especially of those who are unmarried or not yet married. Um, another source of sexual knowledge that we need to discuss is masturbation. Um, I told Erin this week that I think I'm gonna talk about masturbation in church on Sunday, and she was like, ew, why? <laughs> but like, <laughs> masturbation is one of those topics that like, we almost never talk about. It's one of the few taboos that still exists in our culture around sex, which is really weird when, again, Statistically speaking, most of us have some experience with it. The Bible doesn't even have much to say about it, good or bad. Um, it comes close in Leviticus 15, uh, where it says that any man who has an emission of semen of any kind is ceremonially, ceremonially unclean for seven days. So if you're planning to sacrifice a goat at the, uh, at the temple in the next week, you know, it, hold off. <laughs> but otherwise, otherwise, you're good, according to Leviticus. This is a topic that carries a lot of shame and discomfort, and it shouldn't. I believe that masturbation, when paired with lust, or especially when paired with pornography, um, if we are exploiting someone in our minds or on a screen, that veers into some very dangerous territory that Christians should really have nothing to do with. And we're gonna talk about porn some more in a few minutes. But as a form of healthy self-exploration and discovery, a way of learning what feels good and what doesn't, knowledge that you can hopefully then take and use with your partner or future partner, I think it's perfectly normal and healthy. It's certainly not something to be ashamed about or that we should be shaming others about. It is a legitimate source of sexual knowledge. And if you have any doubt about that, remember we were reading Song of Songs, a book that depicts two lovers fantasizing about each other. I'll just leave that there. That's all I'm gonna say about that. Let's move on. Um, so the two lovers in Song of Songs demonstrate sexual knowledge, but they also demonstrate sexual embodiment. Their love is embodied. They are not merely objects of the other person's lust. The two lovers we see in this book are confident in their own sexuality. 
Um, and they demonstrate a love that praises and affirms the body of their partner, goat hair and all. <laughs> this is really important because sex both in the church and in society has become very disembodied. Um, a lot of churches will teach people um, to be ashamed of their bodies, not to trust their bodies, not to listen to their bodies. We hold up the body um, as a source of temptation and shame, and this is a burden that falls disproportionately on women in the church and in society. I remember going to par- uh, pool parties with the high school youth group, um, and the boys could get away with wearing just about anything. I remember 10th or 11th grade, one of my friends showed up to the pool party in a Speedo, and like everyone just laughed it off. We, like, it, was a, it was a joke. Not so much for women. The teenage girls I grew up with in church had their bodies policed through a litany of rules and regulations. Swimsuits had to be one piece. No navel showing, no cleavage showing. I remember 9th, 10th, 11th grade girls being sent home from events like this or forced to put on a t-shirt. Meanwhile, the guys are over on the shallow end of the pool pantsing each other absolutely backwards and ridiculous, unfair. And culture isn't much better. Um, Our society has a number of ways that it disembodies sex um, by commodifying it, separating it from love and commitment, turning it into almost a recreational sport. We disembody sex in hookup apps that reduce a person down to a picture and a profile that we either swipe left or right on. And another major source of disembodied sex in our culture is pornography. The sex depicted in pornography is completely disembodied. The bodies of porn actors themselves hardly count as bodies anymore. They have been augmented, made up, made up, surgically enhanced. The sex depicted in porn is often degrading and disembodied. Um, There have been a number of studies showing that people who view pornography regularly become desensitized to depictions of violence, especially violence against women. Drug and alcohol addiction are rampant in the porn industry. Um, A lot of porn actors perform in these videos to support their habit. And even a basic principle that most of us agree on, like consent, really goes out the window when it's your job, when you are paid to show up and have sex. And porn is big business. Uh, The porn industry in the United States generates about $13 billion a year. At any given moment, there's an estimated 28,000 people viewing pornography, and a third of those are women. So normally, when Christians talk about porn, if we talk about porn, We warn about lust, and that's important. Lust is big. But I think an even bigger issue is how this industry is objectifying people, how it's destroying people's lives. As Christians, we should really work to have no part in it. If you're hungry for a more embodied sexuality, start by ditching the porn. Block the websites, delete it from your computer, um, delete any hookup apps that are on there as well, Uh, If you watch porn regularly, start keeping track. Maintain a log. You can do it discreetly. You'll probably be surprised how much you're watching it. 
Um, and then start trying to work yourself off, work that habit down, wean yourself off the way we would with any addiction. And get some accountability. 61% of American adults admit to watching porn at least once a week. I'm going to reread that statistic. 61% of American adults admit to watching porn at least once a week. If you're struggling with this, there's a good chance other people are too. So talk to somebody that you know cares about you. Open up to someone. Invite them to check in with you regularly on this. There's a good chance they might invite you to do the same. And there are also plenty of apps and resources out there that offer help on this front. Uh, all you have to do is Google help with porn addiction and dozens of things come up. There's a lot of help out there. As Christians, we really shouldn't be involved in this. Other ways to recover uh, a healthy sexual embodiment in no particular order. Uh, don't shame people over their bodies ever, uh, whether it be because their bodies don't live up to your standards or expectations, or because you think they have too much on display, just don't do it. Don't shame people over their bodies. Um, reconnect with your own body. Start listening to your body. Take care of your body. Get back in touch with your body. Rediscover your spouse's body if you're married. Um, compliment them, acknowledge them, celebrate them. Write love poetry about them where you compare their teeth to sheep. <laughs> Different culture. And if you're not currently in any kind of a romantic relationship, uh, this still applies to you as well. Put work into forming meaningful relationships in your life. Become a good listener. Learn to celebrate people. Start working on your own stuff so that if the situation should arise that you find yourself in a romantic relationship again sometime in the future, you'll be better prepared. That is all part of having a healthy, embodied sexuality. How are we doing so far? I think we got through the worst of it. You're still here. Yeah, not a mass exodus. That's good. Um, last but not least, point three. The lovers in Song of Songs are sexu sexually knowledgeable, they're sexually embodied, and they display sexual agency. It means there's no hint of coercion in this book. There isn't any sort of imbalance of power between the two lovers. They don't pressure each other, they don't objectify each other. The man and the woman are equal partners who exercise full sexual autonomy and agency. This is essential whether you are married, dating, in a relationship, or not. Respect your own sexual agency and respect the sexual agency of your partner. No means no, even in marriage, especially in marriage. Don't put your partner in a position they find uncomfortable. Communicate about these things. Make it a normal part of your relationship together. This is the concept of consent. Um, it's probably what, what most people would know this idea as. Probably the one norm for sex ethics that just about everyone in our culture agrees on. Um, sex should never be coercive, abusive, or exploitative. If you are in a relationship like that, get out. Um, talk to someone. Find some help. Um, end that relationship because you deserve better than that. And as essential as consent is, and it is essential, consent is not enough on its own. 
Consent alone is not enough to build a healthy sexual ethic. That's one of the things I think the world is showing us. We need more guidance than just don't commit a felony, right? And that's why I think these three building blocks together are so important and so helpful. With all three of these working in tandem, we have a great start for a healthy sexual ethic. Sexual agency has to come with sexual embodiment. It's not enough to consent if you're consenting to sex that objectifies you or exploits you. That's not healthy. You also have to have sexual knowledge. We have to know our boundaries, what's safe and what's not, what's off limits, before we can really consent to anything. We need all three of these working together to be sexually whole and healthy selves. Again, look for that article that's going to be coming out as a discipleship resource in the first forward. I think it'd be really worth reading if you want to go a little deeper into some of this. And that's what I've got on sex in the self. Next Sunday, we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to pick up a lot of these threads and go a little deeper as we focus more on the relational aspects of what intimacy looks like with our partner. Um, In the meantime, though, I'd highly encourage you to reflect on the questions in the going deeper section of your bulletin. Um, Take that home with you this week. Reflect on it. Pray over it. uh, Discuss it with your partner. Maybe try reading Song of Songs together, and we will pick this conversation back up next Sunday. Does that sound good? Awesome. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of sexuality and romantic love. I pray for anyone who's carrying shame uh, or harm in this area, that you would bless them, surround them with love, and make them whole. For all of us, Lord, help us to honor ourselves and our bodies. Help us to honor our partners and to honor you with our sexuality. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.